1: Hello, and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins from the Society of St. Pius V, and pastor of Immaculate Conception Church in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father.
0: Hello, Tom. How are you?
1: Good. Father, let's let's begin the, the program tonight with an objection uh, we've received from our recent program on the Blessed Virgin Mary as the co-redemptrix. Uh, we have a, a viewer who writes in and says that... I listened very carefully to what was said in the video, but I wondered if I understood it correctly. Father Jenkins said it was fitting that God grant the redemption because of Mary's faithfulness. He said that this is why the church gives Mary the title of co-redemptrix. So then am I to understand that before God would act to redeem the human race, there had to be one human being who was sinless and totally faithful so that it would be fitting God should save it. I suppose he then did not save her from sin because she was sinless, but from death. Okay, uh,
0: can we stop there? Okay, that I, I see from the length of that, that's uh, multiple questions. Okay, so rather than just bury us all under tons of tons of things, okay? Uh, are you to understand that God would not save the world unless there has come into the world someone who was sinless? Right. I didn't say that. I didn't mean that. And no, that is completely gratuitous. <laughs> that is simply an invention of uh, the writer's own mind. I didn't say that at all, and I'm not really sure where he or she would get this idea. Uh, But that is not what I said. Not what I meant. I simply said what I said, right? That the Church has taught in the past, notably Saint Pius X, right? That uh, our Lord, the Son of God, redeemed the world. De continuo, that is, because of his divine, the dignity of his divine person. Uh, he was able to offer an infinitely powerful sacrifice of atonement for sin. No creature could do that, not Mary, not even an angel could do that. Only the Son of God could do that. And so only his sacrifice was really actually worthy of the redemption. Um, Mary's uh, complete uh, and wholehearted cooperation with the grace of God, though, okay. Uh, the church says uh, merited um, something, okay, clearly, but only de congruo. It would it be fitting that God would grant, as a result uh, of her faithfulness to grace and cooperation with grace, that he would answer that prayer for the redemption, but she couldn't accomplish it, right? And uh, never could she accomplish the redemption. In the course of that video, as I recall, so I pointed out that uh, none of us can earn grace because grace is a supernatural gift of God. None of us is capable of doing anything supernatural without grace to begin with, right? And so uh, clearly, I think uh, if one listened, did in fact listen carefully and understood, uh, I was making it very clear that uh, uh, we cannot earn a grace of any kind. Um, the closest we can come to in any sense being worthy of grace is insofar as God gave it to us for a purpose and we cooperated with it uh, with God's purpose completely. We cooperated with the grace and produced the results that God wanted, that God intended by that grace. So it's almost as though someone would give us a gift that we couldn't possibly have obtained ourselves. But insofar as we use that gift to serve and accomplish the purpose of the one who gave it that the one who gave it could say uh, in a certain sense we deserved it or were worthy of it only insofar as we used it for his own purpose but certainly not in the sense that prior to to that we had any right to it or even any possibility of obtaining it it was a free it was simply a gift an outright gift and so it is with mary <clears throat> but this, uh, you know, it seems that I had to stop you at that one point that you're reading there, because it sounded to me as though you were, she was saying, and I asked you to read it again, <clears throat> that the purpose of making Mary sinless was not her sinlessness, but something about, uh, it seemed like a, uh, almost a tautology. What was that uh, last uh, sentence you read?
1: Am um, I to understand that before God would act to redeem the human race, there had to be one human being who was sinless and totally faithful so that it would be fitting God should save it. I suppose then he did not save her from sin because she was sinless, but from death.
0: I suppose that God did not save her from sin because she was sinless. But from death. But from death. What does that mean? Not sure. I mean, what does that sentence mean, actually? <laughs> God did not save her from sin because she was sinless.
1: But from death.
0: <clears throat> but from death.
1: Saved her from death.
0: Okay, well, I, I don't know what that means, so I guess I can't comment on it because it, why would God save her from sin if she was and, and You understand what I mean? I do. Okay, so uh, next. Uh, what, where okay. are we going?
1: <laughs> next then. Uh, uh, probably Father Jenkins would say that Genesis 3 predicts this co redemption by saying that she shall crush the serpent's head, but the original and inspired Hebrew has it, he shall crush the serpent's head, referring to Christ's seed. And the Catholic scholars know this full well. I myself have several Catholic theology books where this false translation is fully discussed and admitted to be unequivocally false by important Catholic scholars. I'm sure Father Jenkins himself knows about this error. Benedict XVI recently corrected the latest edition of the Vulgate to read, it shall crush. I suppose he did this for shame of this outrageous falsehood in the face of the scholarly world. Why has the Church carried this falsehood on for centuries, knowing it to be deceptive and misleading? Pope Pius IX even predicated the dogma of the Immaculate Conception on this false, false attribution.
0: <clears throat> well, again, uh, this poor person is, uh, knows enough to be ignorant. Unfortunately, this, what he or she doesn't know that is the problem. Okay. In the first place, I understand the Hebrew does say, you know, uh, referring to the child, that he would crush the head of the serpent, okay? St. Jerome translated in the the Vulgate, right, in the fourth century, she shall crush thy head, okay? He wasn't trying to fabricate anything. He wasn't trying to falsify anything. So he translated it. He translated it from the manuscripts that he had, okay? This woman sounds like a Protestant, and um, I think what she's really doing is pointing out the error of the Protestant religion in saying that scripture alone is all we have. Because if St. Jerome was going on the basis of scriptural manuscripts that he had back then, then it just shows how how they can be an error. The manuscripts, the copies, can be an error. And uh, this is all the Protestants have to go by, and they just have to go by human scholarship. That's all they've got.
1: That's good point.
0: But the fact is that Genesis 3, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 15, does in fact say, and she ignores this, she completely ignores this fact, which I find reprehensible, because you'd think if she knew this much, she would know that, that Almighty God said to the serpent, Lucifer, said, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between her offspring and thy offspring. And uh, as St. Paul points out, that her offspring is singular, referring to the Christ child. The child who would be born of her would be the Son of God. And uh, God says first about the woman that he himself would place enmity between the woman and the devil. And this is God's work here the woman would be the enemy of Satan. And it was on the basis of of that, among other things, many other things, that uh, that Pope Pius IX declared the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, that she was always the enemy of Satan. She was never his ally. She was not in his power. God himself would make her the enemy of Satan. And what comes after that doesn't change that at all that this woman would be the enemy of Satan in the world. And she is mentioned even before the Christ child himself, her, her offspring. The mother was mentioned, and then the child, right? And the child would be the enemy of the offspring of Satan. The offspring of the woman would be the enemy of the offspring of Satan, but she would be the enemy of Satan himself. And so the church has always understood, and Christians, true Christians, have always understood that this woman was the enemy of Satan, and she was never in his power. She was never guilty of sin. She was never his ally. She had never joined in his rebellion against God, never defied God, and fallen into the trap that Eve fell into. This was the whole point, that this woman would be the counterpart of Eve, the woman who would not be an ally of Satan and not fall victim to him. This is how Christians, true Christians, have always understood this. Go back to the earliest days of the church and you'll find there is a great veneration of Our Lady in the, in the fathers of the church and they see her in that uh, that prophecy from the uh, third chapter of Genesis. So I would just tell this uh, this uh, poor individual that uh, in, in a certain blindness to prove the church wrong and to prove that Our Lady was evidently, you know, no, no one special and not privileged. Um, that she's uh, turning a blind eye to uh, what is there uh, in order to attack. And evidently to attack in some cases what, in fact, was never in our video to begin with, you know. Uh, so she, he or she seems almost pre-programmed. To immediately default to a certain mode of thinking as soon as you mention Our Lady, because this is what I see is coming out of this video—not what I—not what I put. This is what seems to be coming out of her message. That's kind of a knee-jerk reaction to something, uh, which is is certainly not the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, in fact, if you read Genesis chapter three, verse fifteen. You'll see there's absolutely nothing wrong with the church's translation that uh, even that she will crush your head because if her offspring would do so, then effectively she also had a part in the crushing of the head of Satan. It doesn't take away anything from her, nor does it take away anything from him, from the Christ child, from from the Redeemer Christ. Um, But um, the fact is Regardless of what, whatever else be said about that, none of that takes away from God's initial word and prophecy to Lucifer that he himself would place this animosity, this enmity. He would make enemies of Satan and not just a woman or women, but the woman, specifically a certain woman. And that woman would be the mother of... Uh, the one who would in fact uh, be at odds with the children of Satan, the offspring of Satan and if they if they translate from the Hebrew um, he, the child will crush the head of Satan that is perfectly fine because Catholics have always believed that. We believe that you know Satan's work is crushed. all of Satan's works are crushed by our Lord. Uh, you know in the Old Testament often, what is referred to as the works of a a person or the uh, the the works of a person are referred to as his offspring or as his children so he had begotten these works (coughs) and um so when that passage of sacred scripture is read the offspring of the devil you know it can refer to the the individuals uh, who are followers of satan and You know, some would even say perhaps it could refer to the Antichrist, right? But it could also refer, and it could refer to all these things, but it could also refer to all of Satan's works as we renounce them in our baptism. Um, But uh, sometimes the works of an individual are referred to as his offspring as well. And um, certainly our Lord does that. We know that. There's no dispute there. So... uh, all I can say is we'll pray for the individual involved right. here and hope that they uh, overcome a certain, what I would have to say is a certain prejudice which leads them to immediately default to this uh, put up your duke's mode. Uh, somehow, a certain, um, I've seen it before, almost a contempt for our, our Blessed Lady, mm-hmm. which is certainly very offensive to our
1: Lord. Okay. Well, let's let's change gears, Father, and and answer this question that we've been saving for a couple weeks now from a viewer who wanted to know if you could explain the meaning behind Jacob's Ladder.
0: Mm. Well, Jacob's Ladder is uh, an Old Testament reference, okay? Uh, Jacob um, was uh, traveling. As a matter of fact, he, he lay down to rest, put his head on a stone, fell asleep, and he dreamt, and he dreamt of a ladder stretching from earth up to heaven, and he saw the, uh, I guess it was the angels ascending there, right? And um, he, he awoke with an understanding of what a sacred place this was, where he, where he was. And um, this has been used as a, an image, um, among, uh, among other things, it has been used as an image of the spiritual life, of the ascent of the soul to God. And uh, you do find references to it very often in spiritual writers. Um, we also find a reference to it um, in uh, the gospel. Our Lord um, actually s- sees Nath- Nathaniel. Nathaniel is brought to him. And um, our Lord says of Nathaniel, Behold an Israelite without guile. In other words, he was a very honest, forthright man. And Nathaniel was surprised that our Lord would make a comment like that. without a, But, you know, how did you know me, you know? And our Lord said, before you came, I mean, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. So that must have been significant to him because it impressed him. But uh, our Lord said to Nathaniel, he said, you believe because I said this to you, because I saw you under the fig tree. But I, I assure you, you'll see greater things than this. You will see the angels of God rising uh, and ascending and descending, speaking of kind of a ladder, on the Son of Man, and so suddenly the J- ladder of Jacob somehow as a reference to our Lord, referring to the incarnation, the resurrection, the ascension, our Lord coming from heaven to earth, and our Lord ascending from earth, you know, back to heaven is rightful place, and uh, so one could easily see this as a reference to the spiritual life by which. Each one of us ascends, um, is taken up, as it were, step by step by step. You know, As a ladder goes step by step in the spiritual life, um, we, w- there is no ladder that goes from, from mm. earth to heaven. We know that. <clears throat> um, in fact, in the Old Testament, when people wanted to build a tower that stretched into heaven, uh, up to heaven, God destroyed this and also destroyed their uh, one world language, as it were. <coughs> and you know that, confused their language so they could not conspire against Him anymore. <coughs> um, but that was motivated by pride. <coughs> this was the, the initiative of earth, the Tower of Babel, or Babel, was the initiative of men on earth to almost storm heaven. Right, they were going to build a tower up there, almost like a siege tower, so they were going to be able to have access to heaven this way. And God humbled them all by this. But this this ladder came from heaven, okay, to earth, and it was through our Lord, Son of God, becoming man, that that access was given. Now there is access to heaven because of Christ's descent. And uh, the latter could even symbolize the the humanity of our Lord and becoming as I say, becoming man through the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, that He Himself came to Earth, but by this means, you know, He could have simply appeared here. This is His creation, but in a sense, He descended that ladder, and uh, we talk about our Lord, you know, coming down to us from heaven. But he also made it possible for us to ascend that ladder and follow his way to heaven. So um, when you read the accounts of the spiritual writers, they will sometimes refer even to the rungs of the ladder and the virtues of humility and purity and patience and so on. as so many steps to ascend through the... Uh, justification of the soul from sin, and the sanctification of the soul by the virtues of Christ. Uh, until finally, uh, you know, we, we, cl- we can only climb so far, but the point is, this is a supernatural ladder. And so, uh, it is a ladder that is lifts us by the grace of God, above the level of earth, which we naturally found ourselves to a, a state that is above nature, supernatural. Mm-hmm. There's much more that could be said about this. I know, you know, the volume is written about it, but just in, in you know a brief uh, statement. That's that's basically. Mm-hmm. What
1: we can I say. think uh, Saint John Chrysostom wrote mm-hmm. a lot about that, and there, there are several other other saints as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've we've got another question here, Father, that, that we've had for some time now that I'd like for you to answer here. Uh, this viewer asks about the Eastern Rite, or the Byzantine Catholic Churches, uh, and they say, as I understand it, they did not change their rites of ordination after Vatican II, so I would assume their priests and bishops are all valid as well as the divine liturgy. But does the recognition of Francis as Pope compromise their validity?
0: Well, uh, the individual says he or she does not, she understands, understands that they did not change their ceremonies. right? I do not know that, okay? okay? I do not know that. I know that a number of things have changed, but I also know that they have much more jealously guarded their traditions, okay? When the traditions of the Latin Rite were under assault by those who had a God-given duty to protect them, I understand the Eastern Rites um, guarded uh, their own traditions. But I don't know that it is safe to say that they have not changed any of their rights. I'd, I'd like to note the answer to that question more uh, accurately, but if they have not changed the the rights of ordination, priesthood and, and uh, conservation of bishops and so on, then the rights themselves would remain traditional, would remain valid in themselves, uh, um, of course, the rite itself, uh, is not the only thing necessary for validity, a valid ordination or consecration. The one who is ordaining and consecrating, right? The ordaining and consecrating bishop himself must be validly consecrated a bishop in order to be able to give, uh, the sacrament, okay, so to speak. So, um, that's, that's one thing in addition to that. But, um, Assuming that they have maintained that succession in the Eastern rites of the Catholic Church, um, the Francis being who he is would not affect that. Would not affect the validity anyway. Um, as a matter of fact, I would I would expect that Eastern Rite clergy, the rank of priests or bishops would be very suspect of Francis and in some cases just downright uh, horrified by things that he says and does um because they they have a, a close attachment to tradition their traditions um so uh, no uh, the the presence of Francis would not affect the validity of this
1: okay.
0: anyway that i that i can think of though yeah.
1: If their orders are still valid, is it permissible for Catholics to attend there?
0: As long as they're Catholic. As long as they are Catholic. Now, you have to be careful because it would be very easy for a, a Catholic um, to make a mistake, and a mistake that would be encouraged by the Orthodox, okay? Because the Orthodox churches, as I mentioned before, are, uh, are not Catholic, okay? They're schismatic. They broke away back in the 10 hundreds, right? Uh, There was an effort to bring them back into union with the Catholic Church back in the 1400s. Some did, but many did not. Most did not come back to union with the Church. And so they remain schismatic orthodox. So if they have the title orthodox in the name, it is a schismatic church. It is not a Catholic Church. Um, The the Catholic Eastern Rites are known as Uniate, U-N-I-A-T-E, because of the union they sought Reunion, they sell with Rome, and they have it in Catholic, in their title. Okay. Now, you, you'll have some schismatic uh, outfits that try to do both. They say the Orthodox, Catholic, so-and-so, and so and so you know, they'll try to use both to confuse people, and it often works. It does confuse people today. Um, but uh, I don't know of any true Eastern Rite Catholic Church that refers to itself as an Orthodox Church, in terms of a title, right? And they are Orthodox insofar as they have the correct teaching of the faith, clearly. But to call themselves by that name, the an Orthodox Church, no, that, that would tend to disqualify them as being Catholic. But if they are a Catholic Uniate, right, and they follow the traditional uh, rights and they uh, of the, their Eastern rite and they follow the traditional moral. Teaching of the Church and all the rest, then yes, a Catholic, a true Catholic, could without uh, could in good conscience go and receive the sacraments from them.
1: How many Eastern rites are there? They mentioned the Byzantine rite here, but are there not
0: others? Well, I understand there there are about uh, four, as many as four dozen different rites, uh, you might say. Uh, Whether all of them are still extant or not, I don't know. I mean, there's a Sarum rite in England, and there are various other rites, various Gallican rites, and so on. Um, but, you know, there's the, there are many uh, Eastern rites of the Church. Um, in fact, there are books uh, written, and sometimes picture books, that show uh, the, uh, the carrying out of these ceremonies, the, the, the various high points in the ceremonies. And they're very elaborate, very ornate, very solemn when they're done correctly and traditionally. Um, but they each have uh, something characteristic about them. Uh, But they also all converge in the same uh, prayers of the uh, canon and the meaning of the prayers of the canon of the Mass and the consecration of the body and blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord and the placement of the sacrifice on the altar and that this is the unbloody sacrifice of Calvary. They all understand that.
1: Hmm, Interesting. Okay. Uh, we have another question here from, a, from a, a viewer, Father, who'd like to know your thoughts on uh, Father Dennis Fahey and uh, if you could comment about him and the books he's written and what, what your opinion is okay.
0: Well, Father Fahey was a Holy Ghost father. Uh, that's the religious order he belonged to. And uh, back in the 40s and 50s, he, uh, probably 30s too, actually, he wrote some very powerful works on the social reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the efforts of masonry and communism and uh, Zionism, well, such as it was at that, that time, to dethrone our Lord and uh, to uh, do away with Christian uh, civilization entirely by rejecting the authority of our Lord over mankind. Uh, liberalism, naturalism, rationalism, all of these philosophies played a part. But as a, as a social effort, um, one might even uh, refer to the um, um, cultural Marxism. I don't know that Father Fehi wrote about that by name. I'd have to. I'm trying to think. It's been a while since I've read his books. But he wrote quite a number of books, uh, very powerfully stating the case for the social reign of our Lord and how necessary it was. For mankind to acknowledge the true God and uh, not only in terms of its faith but in terms of its common worship too. And he talks about the forces of organized naturalism, trying to basically restore uh, uh, paganism in the world by essentially murdering Christ again, crucifying him again and uh, burying him in the tomb and this time keeping him there, (laughs) so that there is no resurrection. Um, I believe Father Fahey was a bit of a prophet. Um, He wrote some very powerful things which are politically incorrect today. God bless him. (laughs) He was willing to say the truth. Uh, I don't know if he would be permitted to tell the truth today. I think he'd be mercifully hounded by the enemies of christ uh, certainly the southern poverty law center would c- condemn him as a a, a rabid uh, hate monger or whatever you know this is what the, they specialize in okay uh, uh they uh they are the they are the hate mongers but they pin that label on everyone else they would certainly pin that label on father fahey um but if you have a work that is truly written by Father Faye, um, that I would recommend that you read it, you'll see exactly what I mean. When he wants to uh, uphold, uh, battle for, argue for, pray for the social kings- kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ as the only solution to the problems in, in the world and the only solution for uh, Preventing the world from falling into the errors of Russia. Uh, in other words, Father Fahey uh, understood that aspect very well. Uh, understood the aspect of Our Lady's prophecy at Fatima, that if uh, her requests were not met, that people would stop sinning, that they consecrated themselves to her immaculate heart, they would pray the Rosary, they would receive Communion on the five first Saturdays. Um, the Holy Father would consecrate Russia to her immaculate heart, and all the rest that she said. Uh, would need to be done, um, that era, Russia would threaten her throughout the world. And some years later, Lucia was asked, uh, do you mean the entire world? And she said, yes, the entire world, by which they understood that including our own United States would fall to this. So, um, uh, Father Vahey understood the need for that social reign of Christ, and uh, he understood the conjunction of the reign of Christ with the fulfillment of Our Lady's request at Fatima and the honoring of Our Lady's Immaculate Heart. So he was truly a, a messenger of Fatima, too, in his own right.
1: Very good. Uh, we've got another email, Father, here with, uh, with several short, short questions that I'd like you to go through, if we can. Uh, so that the first one is, how can I tell if my blessed items are blessed by a holy priest, non-Novus Ordo priest?
0: you can't. (laughs) Uh, They don't sparkle. Uh, They don't glow in the dark. Um, um, If you know who blessed them, fine. I I suppose you could check out uh, the curriculum vitae and the bio of that individual. The only way you can be sure that they're blessed by a priest that you would consider holy, I guess, would be to find a priest you consider holy, a traditional priest, and go and ask him to bless them. Mm -hmm. Um... That's the only way to be sure that that has been done
1: I remember a, a story from Saint Teresa's life where after she had her her rosary blessed walking home after that she pulled it out and was studying her rosary and when her, her sister asked her what she was doing she said she just wanted to see what the what the blessed rosary looked like how, mm-hmm. how, how different it was mm-hmm. um, so that was that was rather funny but
0: well you know these days uh, they say there are the apparitions going around you know where your rosary is going to turn to gold <laughs> and uh who knows what you uh what else but uh of course Saint therese was not partisan of those things mm. she was in her own in her own childlike way yeah. right how old was she at the time I'm not sure. Oh, okay sure. sounds like be a child would so, say. No. Uh, no. perfectly yeah. fine for a child to say, but We know that it doesn't quite work that way. All right.
1: Uh, Let's see here. Fatima tells us to attend the first Saturday masses, but did uh, the Blessed Mother did she mean only pre-Vatican II masses?
0: Those were the only masses there were at the time. Um, Our Lady was referring to the the mass that was offered throughout the Catholic world, notably in the Latin Rite in Portugal, and so uh, the Roman Rite. So, uh, at the time, that's exactly what she was referring to.
1: Okay. Uh, this viewer says, I'll, I'll have more questions for you now, as I consider the issues brought up by Vatican II, but they would like to know, where can I find more info about you, Father Jenkins?
0: Oh. <laughs> well, I don't know what kind of info she wants. <laughs> There's not really enough a lot of info on me, because I'm not that important, <laughs> quite frankly. Yep. Uh, nobody's written any books about me, <laughs> <Okay. clears throat> and if they do, they'd be very boring. Uh, um, I, I think the only way, you, you know, just listen to the videos, listen to the sermons and you'll form your own opinion. Um, but uh, as far as the curriculum vitae for me, um, you know, uh, we can publish that, uh, rather than go go into that here, which would definitely be a, uh, a cure for insomnia for our listeners, if they're already still awake. Uh, uh, we can post that, or I can bring that up sometime yeah, fair enough
1: uh, there, there's an interesting question father i 'd like you to address from a, a viewer who asks if it 's possible to uh to to de unconsecrate a Catholic church, and they say the background is that there's a uh, a Catholic church uh, a former Catholic church that 's now a mosque, so is it possible mm-hmm. to to deconsecrate or unconsecrate?
0: well, the church Catholic can be profaned, can be defiled in fact, there are certain things that could happen in a church that would Require the church to be reconciled or to be, as it were, not reconsecrated or rededicated, um, but would certainly profane, for example, a wanton murder going, that took place in the church would make it unusable. I mean, you you, you could not offer mass in the church. The, the, a bishop would have to come and conduct the ceremony of reconciling the church because of the, the evil that had taken place there. Um, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example of a church that was decommissioned, so to speak, okay, uh, by the Novus Ordo, and that is our own Immaculate Conception Church here in Norwood, uh, was formerly known as St. Matthew's. It was uh, established, the parish was established as St. Matthew's in 1906. The young, uh, recently ordained priest, uh, Father Frederick Gallagher, it was put in charge And he remained in charge all the way through to 1924 when he died, um, just months after the present church was finished. And uh, when the uh, diocese, the Archdiocese of Cincinnati, decided to sell this church, together with a a sister church here in Norwood, uh, they actually put it on the market. And uh, the the people in the parish there weren't many left okay i mean it was one of those blighted parishes blighted by the novus ordo okay um and it it was blighted really by the novus ordo in in a number of ways with the diminishing uh number of people in the pews on sunday (coughs) but also even the interior of the church with a you know, orange carpeting that would look—it was just awful. We I mean, wouldn't put it in a kind of a cheap, cheap diner or restaurant. You know, so it was awful. <coughs> and uh, of course, the altar had been, t- uh, had been left in place because it's marble and it was set in place. But they had a table. You know, the set in its place. They drilled holes, holes through the sanctuary floor so they get their microphone cables through. They uh, ripped off the communion rail, marble and communion rail. They t- tore it up. In fact, I understand that. Uh, one of the gentlemen who was a uh, member of the parish council, I think he was a president of the parish council at the time, as was a police officer, uh, told the priest, if you destroy that communion rail, uh, I will never come back here. And so the priest actually is buried it. All the pieces were buried in the basement. It was an earth, uh, earthen basement then, uh, red clay. And when we went down there for the first time, we got occupancy of the church, we found uh, Like so many dinosaur bones, this white marble thing sticking out of the floor, at first we didn't know what they were. We we excavated them, and lo and behold, they were the community realm, which we have restored. But um, what they did when they were selling the church, they thought they were selling the church to a, a Protestant group. They were very happy with that. They were very unhappy when they found out we bought the church, and we were going to bring the true mass, the traditional mass, back to it. They actually made a public statement about uh, how pleased they were to think they had been selling it to a Protestant group, and how upset they were to think that it was being sold back to a traditional Catholic group, who would restore the traditional mass there. You'd think they would have been embarrassed to say that, but they don't have the sense to be embarrassed to say that. But uh, anyway, this they printed in, the, in the newspaper here in Cincinnati. So it was a very public statement on their part. But in any case, um, they did have someone go and remove the relics from the altars. <coughs> and they even tore out the tabernacles. Now, the person they had a- at least tear out the relics from the altars was actually the local undertaker. The local uh, mortuary sent someone over, probably a member of the parish, to come over and to remove the relics kind of appropriate considering what they were doing to the church, right? Um, and a, a local marble worker came over, took the statues as his pay, the marble statues, and took out tabernacles from the altar. Um, so that was their way of basically uh, ripping the heart out of the church. Right? They had already ripped it, the heart out of the church with the Novus Ordo, let's face it. I mean when they put the Novus Ordo in here, they already ripped the heart out. Um, But they they just completed the work of despoiling the grave, as it were. They despoiled the grave by taking out the relics and taking out the the, the tabernacles. But I was surprised that they even cared. I mean, you hear about so many things about the Novus Ordo um, selling off the churches. And, you know, they don't care about anything sacred. And one of the churches here our Lady of, uh, Lady of Perpetual Health, I think it was. I was walking down the steps into the sacristy, marble steps in the sacristy, and I saw uh, a pile of uh, marble pieces that were stacked up on the steps. Some people would actually walk on them on the way down. They were the altar stones with the relics of the saints, the martyrs still contained in them. didn't care. Nothing is sacred to these people. So i would seen enough of that, so that when I saw that they actually went through the trouble of removing the relics of the altar and the tabernacles, I thought, well, these people are showing at least some care, thinking they're selling this to a Protestant church, they're going to take the relics of the, of the saints away, and the tabernacles, but then I'd heard that it was actually not the idea of the local bishop, or the priests, but it was the idea of the local uh, funeral homeowner, who wanted to do that, because because what I heard, anyway, that he knew of churches, mission churches that would be needing them, that were more conservative, Mm -hmm. curiously enough. So I wonder what became of some of these things. A number of the things from the church were taken and and stored in what they call the Holy Spirit Center now, which is the decommissioned seminary that used to be flourishing with 200 vocations in any given year, and now is just a retreat center. Mm -hmm. Um... Another sign of the great springtime of the church that Vatican II brought to us. But um, in any case, um, a church can be decommissioned this way. I mean, it's a it's crime, it's, it's terrible, it's sad. But Vatican II has, has uh, brought this, about, this scenario about thousands and thousands of times across the world. The churches have been abandoned. And sold off, and then now you're being used as bakeries, as bars, or
1: is, is there a proper way, Father, for if, if there's a traditional Catholic church that um, for whatever reason, for example, there's the uh, the there's a, a Saint Pius X Chapel here mm-hmm. in, in the Cincinnati area. That they uh, decided to to sell that, and I believe it's now some some kind of brewery now. But is there a, a proper process to go through for decommissioning a church?
0: There, there would be a process that you have to go through, and removing the sacred items, mm-hmm. for example, that would be among the things. But ordinarily, uh, I think I think the process really, the, the, if, you, if you were to interpret the mind of the church, and not just the letter of the law, the spirit of the law, the building itself should be demolished. Hmm. It's like having a chalice, you you have a chalice that is consecrated, and once you put that chalice up for public sale, it can be used for profane purposes, it loses the consecration. But really only in melting it down, it it loses its form entirely as a chalice at that point, it just becomes gold, silver, and other metal. And the same with the church, you know, ordinarily the, the church would be demolished. In fact, if you, if you look back in history, there are many churches that are very ancient, that were not rebuilt when they became decrepit. They would be demolished. Um, the church, uh, the original church of St. Saint, uh, Saint Clement in Rome, when that church had stood for 800 years and became, um, shall we say, decrepit, okay, they actually caved it in on itself and used that as a foundation for the church that they built okay. above it. Oh. Which is, again, quite ancient, right? Um, but they didn't allow the church itself to be profaned by something sinful or, or secular, as it were. Um, it is with great reluctance that our, uh, the church allows a, what has been a sanctuary for the holy sacrifice of the Mass. To be uh, simply turned into some uh, profane audience hall or uh, concert hall or brewery or whatever else. Uh, but the Nova Soto is probably responsible for that. Uh, I would make a, a rather bold statement, I guess. I don't even know if anyone could prove me right or wrong. But I would bet that since the Nova Soto came out back in the late 1960s, right? About 1970 that more Catholic churches have been destroyed, uh, disbanded, um, uh, profaned, um, quote unquote, decommissioned just in this space of time since Vatican II than for centu- in, in the course of centuries and centuries of the church before then. Um, but, in any case, uh, that's just a thought. <laughs> I swear.
1: Scary
0: thought. Well, unfortunately, as I, you know, the Novus Ordo itself, if one would face what it is, it really is. It is a horror, you know. Yeah. Talk about the abomination of desolation. There it is. it is. If it is not the abomination of desolation, for it told by the prophet Daniel, it is certainly a major step on the way. In fact, when I was studying in Rome at the Angelicum, our professor told us, a uh, litur- liturgy professor told us, that the, the new the Novus Ordo Missae issued by John, by Paul VI, was just the second phase of a five-phase process to produce a new liturgy. So when we see that every year or two they bring out changes within the, the Novus Ordo Mass itself, we shouldn't be surprised. It's a work in progress. It's an ongoing thing. And if it is only, indeed, as our liturgy professor told us, only the second phase of a five-phase process you know, just imagine what the third, fourth, and fifth phases will be.
1: Did he comment on those?
0: Uh, he didn't, no. Uh, he just kind of left it at that. Huh. But um, I think everyone was so uh, kind of stunned by that. that and, and People didn't know what to ask. Besides, you never raise your hand and ask a question. I was the only one I know in the course of my time over there who ever raised his hand to say anything. And uh, it was a shocking to all, especially to Professor, right? Um, but um, but no one commented or asked about that he didn't say any more about it Um, but I think the implications were clear Um, that uh, we're heading toward uh, well ultimately Envision is a liturgy which we could not possibly imagine yet Um, as people could not have imagined the Novus Ordo 20 years before, 30 years before. They couldn't have imagined it. If you suggested it, they would have laughed. They they wouldn't have gotten angry. They would have, they would have laughed. They thought it was hysterical that you would even suggest such a thing. Well, 20, 30 years before, here we are, right? So many years afterwards. And um, if we've still got three more phases to go, uh, you really will have the abomination of desolation coming out of all this. That's That's the ultimate goal of the all.
1: Yeah. Uh, well... Father, this, this, uh, this next email seems to tie into that a little bit, and I think we, we could make this our, our final email for tonight. But um, this viewer wants to know if there is a traditional church teaching regarding revolution. They say that, uh, that there are many currents in today's USA society that appear to be pushing us toward revolution. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about armed revolution against the government and against our neighbors in the streets I've heard one prominent Catholic writer and commentator say that say many times that the Church is strongly opposed to and teaches against revolution. The members of the Church are not to engage in any kind of revolutionary activity against anything going on in our government and society. Is that true?
0: That's not true. <clears throat> no, I mean, if they are looking at the traditional teaching of the Church, uh, the Church says that the grievances can be so great that it is... Um, uh, if there is a despot, if there is a, uh, a dictatorship um, that is truly oppressing the people and the the hope of making things better uh, is real and the danger of making things worse uh, can be overcome, um, that it can be justified on occasion i 'm not saying, under the present circumstances in our country or anywhere else i 'm just saying it, in principle, the church has said that it can be done morally, and um, the church never condemned the American Revolution, the war for independence. the church never condemned it <clears throat> they can call it the revolutionary war so what that it 's fighting for independence against uh, retirement and um <clears throat> So, no, St. Thomas Aquinas talks about the question, principles for a just war, and so on and so forth. And in talking about authority and power, governmental powers in society, he does foresee, or he does envision the possibility that a tyrant could rise to power and um, usurp the rights of the people and uh, oppress them. And that he foresees, or he envisions the circumstances under which the people would have a right to rise up and refuse his rule, uh, even by force of arms. Okay. So, um, I mean, I, I know that in our own country there has been talk uh, notably uh, by the leftists since uh, Donald Trump uh, was elected president. Uh, the leftists are the ones who are making all these noises about he's not my president and you know, uh, you know, they're the ones now who are, are um, very violent. You know, in their attacks in the streets, uh, viciously attacking people who, who just wear a, a hat saying "Make America Great Again." You know. So, uh, but this is normal for leftists. I mean, they are the revolutionaries. It's not the uh, the conservatives, so so called. You know, it's all relative now, right? Um. Who are the ones preaching revolution? It's the leftists, but they've always been the ones. They've been the ones behind all of these revolutions, uh, all the socialist revolutions um, going back in the eighteen hundreds. Um, so um, I'm not, I'm not in any way uh, endorsing those. Okay, mm-hmm. not at all. Um, if the leftists want a revolution, it is precisely to overthrow the. Um, the the honor of, of God and the authority of Christ in the world, okay? So this is the revolution from hell, what it is, right? There are those who even go so far among the leftists to say that Christ was himself a revolutionary. So this is their way of trying to paint themselves, you know, as though they are following the path of Christ, that they are revolutionaries too, just as Christ was. As a matter of fact, when I was in high school, uh, i think it was back in the 1700s sometime <clears throat> when i was in high school one day we were presented with a, a, a little tabloid type of publication for our religion text we opened it up and there's there is a picture line drawing portraits on the picture for dignitaries you know uh our lord jesus christ right is pictured here as I understand, I mean, I think Karl Marx was pictured here, maybe George Washington was pictured here, maybe Mao Zedong was pictured here, and the statement was all, all of these men were revolutionaries, right? This is our religion material, okay? <clears throat> so they like to, uh, you know, wear white robes and wear beards and have long hair and all the rest, you know, to make... So, I draw some kind of connection there. They have no connection whatsoever. Our Lord wasn't the revolutionary. We were the revolutionaries. Adam and Eve were the revolutionaries when they sinned. Sin is the revolution. Our Lord came to restore. He was restoring to what God had originally intended. For example, with marriage and matrimony, our Lord wanted to restore what, uh, in the minds of men, what, matri- what marriage truly is as God created it, right? Our Lord wanted to restore the soul back to grace, to, to grace again. So our Lord was not the revolutionary. He was, in the eyes of the revolutionaries, he was, because he was going to overturn their revolution. But he was here to restore. And um, so, you know, this is this is basically what those, what, we, we, what do you want to do? We want, to, we want a restoration. We want the restoration of the world to God. We want a restoration of the human soul to God. Um, If in the course of the the world's history, there are tyrants who wish to deny the God-given rights that are spoken of in our founding documents and uh, wish to place themselves on the throne of God and to command uh, not, uh, not only compliance of body, but the obedience from the soul of, of, of their of their subjects, of their prisoners, then those prisoners can't have the right to rise up and say no.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And I, to defend, it's a matter of defending themselves.
1: Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting, Father, I believe it's in the uh, Gospel of St. Luke where our Lord and his apostles, they uh, enter into one of the, the cities that... Um, have, we'll have have nothing to do with them. We'll not accept them. And the apostles ask our Lord if if yeah. they should they should call down fire and brimstone upon yeah. this upon this uh, this city. And our Lord says, yeah. No, I didn't come to come to yeah. to destroy. I came to to make make peace. Essentially, and not, right. not to be
0: right. And, and and the leftists will will quote that, yeah. just like you did, <laughs> but not quite like you did, <laughs> because our Lord did tell the apostles the very night that oh. he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. I told you before, you know, do not uh, resist, but now I tell you go and uh, take sword. Mm-hmm. Peter himself took the sword in the garden, but our Lord told him to put it away, right? Because Peter's, was, Peter's sword was not going to save our Lord, our Lord was not going to be saved from the sacrifice he was about to make. But our Lord did say, now it is necessary for you to buy the sword. In fact, the apostle said, well, look, we have two swords here. And our Lord said, well, that's enough. <laughs> so put that away. But, um, you know, there there are commentators who uh, see the words of our Lord and say he's not saying that it is forbidden to use the sword for a just cause. And the church has always said if there's an unjust aggressor, you have the right to defend the innocent. If it's an unjust aggressor against yourself, (coughs) you don't have to defend yourself. You You can make the sacrifice, okay? But if you have an obligation as a father to a family or a citizen to a country to defend, then you have to use the, the means at your disposal to defend those you're responsible for. It's not your luxury just to say, well, kill us all, that's fine. you know. And you make the decision for everybody just to let the enemy try it. Because if you have a tyrant, he, he is an unjust aggressor. And he, you have the right to resist him,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and sometimes the obligation, the absolute obligation, obligation to resist him.
1: I believe, Father, our Lord also said that uh, that He came to set the child against their parents, that mm-hmm. the the, uh, the son against his father, the daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law. Mm-hmm. So that seems to be, a, a, in a sense, some some sort of revolution. So how would you how would you justify that?
0: No, it's not a revolution. No, it's just that you're trying to bring souls back to God, and as you do, the revolutionaries are, are not going to be happy, and, and they're going to become the enemies of, of those in their own families, because, you know, they are we're all pagans before, and on, on the way to hell, right? Mm-hmm. That some now have broken ranks with the revolution, and now they want to go back to God, and of course the revolutionaries are not going to take that, take that lightly. And that is the that is the opposition that is there now. Okay, I mean, yes, our Lord did say I came to you know, but our Lord said I came to cast fire on the earth. He said that right. Um, so our Lord did claim to declare war on Satan, the prince of this world, right? Um, so you know you see the opposition between our Lord and the powers of this world, the Pharisees. And power of Caesar, represented by Pontius Pilate, and so on. Now, in, in bringing that opposition, our Lord wasn't the revolutionary. The Romans might have looked at him that way. And the Pharisees and the, the chief priests might have looked at that way, because they saw him as a threat to their power. That's all. But all that our Lord uh, was trying to do, all that he was trying to do, right, <laughs> was bring the dead human souls, uh, souls dead to God back to life, and restore them to God who had originally created them and not for that, not for the Pharisees and not for Caesar, mm-hmm. not for slavery to Satan, but for heaven. Mm-hmm. Now our Lord wasn't the revolutionary, but the, but the revolutions the revolutionaries always try to claim whoever they can in the past falsely as being on their side, right? Um and um they, they in a sense they have to do so because they have to try to get the whole world on their side because they're against god mm-hmm. right but, but what good would it do them to get the whole world on their side and be against god <laughs> they, they lose anyway yeah. but it sort of gives them comfort to think that, well, this famous person of old, whom everyone loves and admires, they were one of us, too. You know, this person was definitely a Freemason back then. You know, this person was one of, the, one of us, too. The, the, well, I won't get into that because it gets rather sordid. But the deviants today, they always try to paint a picture. As a, you know, this famous person whom everybody admires, well, they were one of us, too. You know? And why are they doing this? It's a, it's a sign of great weakness. <clears throat> that then they know. They're dealing from a position of weakness. And the only way they can do that is by trying to bolster their position by lies. Right. Well,
1: perhaps we, would, we should uh, end there, Father, before we start a revolution. How's that? Well,
0: okay. Well, <laughs> uh, we haven't said much about Francis yet, though. Uh, so I don't know if we could really end the program yet. And, uh, no. up. But anyway, uh, his name did come up. And uh, so just uh, Pray pray very hard and, and uh, ask Our Lady for, uh, for guidance in this, and uh, you know, I'm going to be asking our Blessed Mother to have mercy on the dear soul who wrote our first question here, because uh, uh, Our Lady does have a, a special place in our Lord's sacred heart, and hopefully someday Our Lady will have a special place in the heart of this dear soul, too. Sounds
1: good. Thanks for being here tonight, Father. Sure, Thank for, you. Thanks for teaching us what Catholics believe.
0: Oh, you're welcome. Sure. Sure.
1: Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima, to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.